You can open your Bibles if you have them to Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44 is where we're going to be this morning. Luke 18, verses 28 to 44. There's a question that we all have to wrestle with at some point in our lives. What are we here for? Philosophers will call this the existential question. What am I here? Why do I exist? What am I for? And lots of people ask this question. It's a natural question for you to come to, for you to ask, what am I here for? But lots of people, especially in our world right now, are asking that very question as they're laid off from jobs, as they find themselves trapped in their home. These questions of your own existence come to the forefront of your mind. Why am I here? What purpose am I serving? You'll probably, you probably know in the Great Depression and the subsequent World War II that U.S. was involved in, uh, all of our kids born from 25 to 45 were all affected by that era. We call them the silent generation, but they all grew up during that time when uh, kids were sort of swept aside because there were more pressing concerns on America's plate, namely the Great Depression and recovery from the Great Depression and then World War II that we were engaged in. And so it affected an entire generation of kids that were lost in the mix of that war and the economic depression. And, and so as they've grown, they've begun to ask that question, what is our purpose? And discover that question uh, of finding their purpose. Well, in Palm, this Palm Sunday text that we're in, which is somewhat of an orthodox Palm Sunday passage because there are no palms in it, uh, but in this Palm Sunday passage that we're in, we're going to discover what our purpose is even in the midst of the desert. And we're also going to see the consequences for rejecting that purpose. Let's look at our text this morning. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Ask You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, sent, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, 
had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within, within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for the text that we've just read. That as we think about this season that we're in, this time that we're coming upon, Palm Sunday and and Easter Sunday, as we consider all of the events that took place on those magnificent days some 2,000 years ago, that they would be read for us and understood to us anew, that we would apply them to our lives and hearts, we would be challenged by what's happening in this text, that you would give us a very clear sense of purpose in the midst of the desert. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're approaching the climax of Jesus' uh, this story of Jesus in the Gospel of, of Luke, where the height of the tension between Jesus and the Pharisees is about to be reached. And when you stop and think about this scene that we've we've just read, it seems really a bit strange. I mean, here you have Jesus, the one and only Son of God, who comes in riding on a donkey. And then people are putting their coats on the ground in front of the donkey for the donkey to walk on and putting their coats on the back of the donkey for Jesus to sit on. And then they're shouting praises to him. To add to the strangeness of the passage, Jesus seems to instruct his disciples to go into town and steal someone's donkey and just take it from them. And then to make it even more strange, the person seems relatively okay with it, or at least he doesn't put up much of a fight. And so Jesus is entering into the last week of his earthly ministry. And it's a week uh, that we refer to as, as Passion Week. It's the week leading up to Jesus suffering on the cross, which is to take place on Friday. Now, the entire reason that we gather together, whether here or abroad now over live stream, the reason that we gather together every Sunday morning is due to the events that would take place in this week and leading up to the eventual event Sunday of Jesus' resurrection. And over the last several weeks, as long as we've been worshiping uh, socially distant from one another, uh, we have been talking about some aspects of the Christian life that are particularly important during the situation that we currently find ourselves in, cut off from the rest of society, fearful of what uh, looks to be a a plague of some sort, and, and basically deprived from all of our ordinary means of grace and comfort that God n- normally has supplied for us in abundance. Even just meeting with somebody over coffee is no longer available to us. Over the last few weeks, the first week we learned from Isaiah that, that it's important that we not let sin get a foothold during these times of isolation and boredom. 
And then last week we saw in 1 Peter that every anxiety that we have is a cue to drive us to our knees in prayer before the Lord. And instead of being grief-stricken and panic-stricken, we use all of those things as a way of driving us to our knees in prayer before the Lord, asking Him uh, to please supply for us all the encouragement and the grace that we need to make it from week to week and trusting in His plan for our lives. So we're, we're going to continue our series uh, this, th- for the next couple of weeks as we take these events that are significant in Christian history, both Palm Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus, and we show how they inform our lives in the desert. Our text begins in a, a new section in the book of Luke as Jesus is entering Jerusalem and in the previous section that, we, that Luke has just come from, Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom and he's telling all the people that he's teaching all, that all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so really an entire section in the book of Luke from about chapter 14 all the way up to 1927 which is the verse right before our passage this morning. That whole section, 14 to 1927, is really driving home that central message that all those who exalt themselves are going to be laid low and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so he's just looking at that theme from multiple angles. Well, now we get into our story, which is really a new section in Luke. And Jesus and his disciples have made their way now to the outskirts of Jerusalem in the book of Luke only for the first time. And they stand on the Mount of Olives where there are two villages, Bethany and Bethphage. From the Mount of Olives, the Temple Mount or where the golden top of the Dome of the Rock now stands, you can probably see an image of it, the Dome of the Rock is standing there. It's a very short distance from the Mount of Olives to that Temple Mount. And between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount lies the Kidron Valley. And so from where Jesus and his disciples stand at this moment in our passage, they're facing the temple from the Mount of Olives, and Bethany is about a mile walk back over their left shoulder. And Bethphage is about a mile over their right shoulder, just to the north and east. Now, according to John's Gospel... Jesus and his disciples have just gone to Bethany and have raised Lazarus from the dead. So they've been staying in Bethany for some time and have just raised Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus tells his disciples in our passage, go into the village, probably Bethphage, since they've just come from Bethany. And he tells them that they're going to find a colt there that no one has ever ridden on. And they they are to answer the owners, should the owners object to them taking the colt, that the Lord has need of it. And all of this, you might say, well, what, what in the world is this doing in this passage? Remember, people have been following Jesus for some time now. And they've been seeing all these miracles. They've just seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. And so there's this, all this power that's clearly evident in Jesus' life and ministry. And yet, as they're following him, we know where this is eventually going to lead. This is going to lead to his crucifixion. And so all of this, him telling them where the cult is and and what people are going to say and all of the things that he is telling them are all kind of under, under, uh, the underpinning of all of that is to explain to them that he is in control of absolutely everything that's about to take place. 
Nothing is catching him off guard. Not only does he know that there is a cult, he also knows that it has not been ridden. And where the cult is to be found. He tells them that as well. But but he also knows the response of the managers that the managers are going to give. And then the response that the disciples are going to give that are going to put the managers at ease and satisfy them. Now, of course, all of this in the text takes place as Jesus has said that it would. It's a strange scene that the disciples would go and take someone's donkey and even stranger that the person, well, seems to be perfectly fine with it. Or at least he doesn't put up much of a fight. But Jesus, and and a lot of people have questions about this. Like, how in the world can somebody take somebody's personal property and then be okay with it, not put up much of a fight? Jesus is actually making use of of an ancient custom here called Angaria, which allowed important figures, officials, uh, even rabbi, to borrow someone's property for personal use. And so the owner of the cult may not have understood who Jesus was. And when the disciples said, my Lord needs need, has need of it, they're probably meaning just as a point of, of paying deference, just the, the master has need of it. And so this person is obviously showing deference to Jesus, being at, may not have any idea that he's, that he's God incarnate, but at least he's showing deference to the fact that he's a, a rabbi, a teacher. And so there are several parts of this story from there on all of which have roots back as far back as the Old Testament, and some of them have roots to the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. And so scenes that some of these scenes you may be even familiar with as they tie back into the rest of the biblical story that, that is being painted here. First and most obvious is that, uh, is that Jesus, in verse 36, is riding toward the temple on a donkey. In fact, it's a young and never-before-ridden donkey. Don't picture the donkeys of massive kind of mules that, are, that we have in America that are just only a, a slight bit smaller than horses. Um, a donkey in Israel is quite small. Uh, in fact, very small. On an adult donkey uh, in Israel, your legs are going to hang down below its belly. Uh, so on a, on a colt, on a young colt, one that's never been ridden uh, to Jesus, to us, Jesus would look rather ridiculous on this colt. His feet would no doubt be hanging well below the colt's belly, probably just a little bit off the ground. The colt, never having been ridden before, is probably a little bit weak-kneed, certainly not used to carrying anything on its back. But then the question becomes, why? Why must this donkey be so young? Why must this colt never be ridden on before? And and the colt is so young, in fact, Matthew even tells us that the disciples had to bring its mom with the colt because it was too young to be separated from its mom. But why? Well, it's a demonstration of his humility. Think about it. Riding on a colt that had never been ridden on before, it's very small, and therefore, never been broken. Not used to having riders on the back. So it, what does it do? It, it underscores his humility that he's bringing to the table that the colt would not even throw him. But in his humility, he is also fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah 9.9 reminds us, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. 
righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, foal of a donkey. Jesus is humble. He's gentle. And his humility and gentleness is demonstrated not only in the fact that he's riding on a young donkey as opposed to a white horse that we see him on at the end of Revelation, but that the unbroken donkey would not proceed to throw him off. But there are also, so there's the humility aspect of Jesus riding on the donkey. There's certainly that connection that Luke wants us to see, that Jesus is humble and he's riding on a donkey in connection to Zechariah 9.9. But there are also two other Old Testament images that are brought to mind here on the other side of the coin, so to speak. The first is obviously Solomon in 1 Kings 1, 38 and 39. It says this, so Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live King Solomon. So as Solomon accesses the throne in Gehan, he rides on a donkey before he is anointed and enthroned. Now Jesus, much like Solomon, is also marching toward enthronement. But his throne won't be a chair, it'll be a cross. His crown won't be made of gold, it will be made of thorns. His robe, his purple robe, will be put on not with cheers, but with jeers. And yet it is exactly the kind of throne, the robe, and the crown that he came for. As Jesus travels in humility on this tiny donkey, the people are spreading their cloaks on the ground in front of the donkey is yet another image from the Old Testament where Jehu is named the king over the northern kingdom of Israel in 2 Kings 9.13. It says this, Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Images like rolling out a red carpet for the king. This is essentially what they're doing to Jesus. In fact, what's being communicated in all of this is the fact that though he is lowly and humble on one side of the coin, he is also regal. And his disciples are recognizing that he is the rightful king of Israel and his his rightful place is on the throne in Jerusalem that he's marching up toward. But then the crowd goes further. In verse 37, they begin to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. The crowd is, is, is mostly uh, made up of his disciples. At least that's what Luke tells us. is mostly his disciples that are around. And at least they serve, if there is any larger crowd, to get the crowd kind of riled up, at, as, it, as it were. And the disciples are probably, when we're looking at this, it's probably not only the twelve. It's probably also the, the larger circle of followers the 70 that, that Luke mentions earlier in the gospel. And so there's the 70 probably wider circle of disciples 
maybe even in addition to their family. So it could be quite a, a sizable crowd of just disciples. And then no telling who else got whipped up into the frenzy around Jesus as he's riding in. They're rejoicing over the mighty works, he says, that they have just seen. And those closest to Jesus' ministry are celebrating the works that he's done. Now, now no doubt, Luke has in mind Jesus' whole, his entire ministry. But as John lets us know, what they most recently come from is him raising us from the dead. And so there is no doubt in my mind, nor should there be in yours, that when they've seen a man rise from the dead, this tends to inspire in them a great deal of confidence that this person is in fact the Messiah. They're saying in verse 38... Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now the first part of this, the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is taken from Psalm 118.26. Yet another connection back to the Old Testament. In Psalm 118, but this is incredibly important, pay attention. In Psalm 118, the king has conquered the nations surrounding Israel. And he has stripped the nations of their power. And he has handed victory over to God's children, the nation of Israel, in the name of God. And he's marching his way up to the temple. Now, for that reason, Psalm 118 is a word to the Messiah coming. Psalm 118 is one of the Hallel songs that would be sung every Passover. It'd be sung every, during every festival of booths. Um, and both of those festivals, Passover and the festival of booths, are both celebrating the Lord's rescuing the people of Israel from the yoke of slavery. Booths specifically rescuing them from the desert, leading them through the wilderness wandering. In fact, during the festival of booths, they would set up uh, makeshift tents to mimic what the children of Israel were living in. And they, and they still do to this day. They would take palm branches, which is why in most of the stories in the gospel, they have palm branches. They're celebrating the festival booths that God has delivered them from the desert and into the promised land. And of course, you know, Passover, which we're coming upon now, is the celebration of atonement that they would receive before the Lord. So this psalm is celebrating the coming of the anticipated king, the Messiah. And here are the disciples recognizing that the fulfillment of Psalm 118 has come and the conquering king is none other than Jesus of Nazareth. So the crowd of disciples are recognizing that the salvation that all their ancestors have longed for, that they've wandered in the desert to find, that they've desired through years of captivity to come to them, that they've waited for in spite of division amongst their nation, in spite of invading conquerors and living under Roman oppression and various other oppressive groups, in spite of all of that, they've anticipated the day where their Messiah would come in fulfillment of Psalm 118. And the disciples are saying, Jesus is here and he is the one that it's talking about. But you may also recognize the second half of what they're saying. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Peace and glory in the highest are what the angels promised to the shepherds at the beginning of the book of Luke in, as they're sitting in the fields as they're telling them about Jesus' birth, 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The crowds here are recognizing that Jesus is indeed bringing it, that he is bringing peace. Jesus even mentions that about the Pharisees' rejection. If you had only known what it was going to take to bring peace. But that the crowds are recognizing that Jesus is fulfilling what the angels had prophesied or had preached to the shepherds there in the field. However, the peace that he's bringing is more than even the crowds realize. It's more than anybody realizes. In fact, just a few verses prior, all the way back into Luke chapter, or same chapter, chapter 19, all the way back in verse 11, he says this, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So while they're, they are recognizing rightly that he is king, they are wrong in both how and when they think this kingdom is actually going to come to fruition. But that's at least better than the Pharisees who don't believe that he's even king. In fact, look what they tell Jesus in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. They think the people are crazy to attribute Psalm 118 to this peasant Galilean circuit preacher. They know all too well the meaning, by the way, of what the disciples are yelling about Jesus. They know all too well what these disciples are saying. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. They're attributing that to Jesus. They're calling Jesus the figure in Psalm 118 who is the Messiah who's coming to people and having conquered the nations that, and, and the, the Pharisees, they rejected out of hand. That's foolishness. Teacher, you can't let this madness go on. You must shut your disciples up. They don't know what they're saying. They're uttering blasphemies on your behalf. Don't you care about that? Keep them quiet. There's a moment in almost every movie particularly action movies, but almost every movie, where you realize you've entered into the third and final act of the movie. And it's where everything begins to get serious, where the story begins to get really exciting. And all those details that you heard from the beginning and that you learned about this character along the way are all coming to fruition, right? The, the music has it hits its striking note and it just kind of gives you this ominous tone. You realize the final conflict is coming about. Your heart begins to pound as you see and sense things are getting more serious. You may move to the edge of your seat as you anticipate the coming of the end of this movie. This is the scene in Luke's gospel where that happens, where you realize everything is coming to fruition Everything is about to get real in Luke's gospel. The Pharisees have demonstrated themselves gatekeepers of Judaism. They've situated themselves as the gatekeepers of Judaism, and they would be the ones that are holding Christ's people under this kind of gloomy chain of darkness. And the Pharisees would rather put their hands on the disciples' mouths in order to keep their praises in. But Luke gives us 
Jesus' response to that. Christ is king. And all of creation is the source of his praise. Christ is king. And all of creation is the source of his praise. So Jesus turns to the Pharisees in verse 40. And he says to them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus is the great great redeemer who is stepping into the darkness and his sheep are hearing his voice and they're recognizing it and their cries are cries of desperation. They're in the middle of the desert and he is the river of life flowing their way and they see him coming a mile away and they cannot help but praise him. And all of creation fact is under the chain of gloomy darkness, but the eternal Son of God who brings hope has entered the world. But you remember, He was born in a manger. During His ministry, He had nowhere to lay His head. When He was a kid, He was the adopted son of a poor carpenter and a child of a scandalous pregnancy. During His life, His very own brothers didn't even believe in him until much later after the resurrection. He forced the demons to keep quiet about who he was because they knew. He gets on a donkey, riding into the lair of the enemy, and he pulls back his hood of his black cloak And really for the first time is unveiling himself to the world and he's accepting their praise and their accolades. And all those that see him and recognize who he is are shouting for joy because the hero of the story has finally come into the lair of the enemy and the Pharisees who sadly don't recognize him at all Say, hey, can you keep them quiet? They're disturbing the peace. And Jesus says to them, you have no idea. You have no idea. If I kept them quiet, the floodwaters of joy would burst wide the dam of creation and the rocks themselves would cry out because sadly, the rocks Recognize me even though you don't. But it's not all joy. Look at what Jesus says in verses 41 to 44. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you even, uh, even you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. You can imagine 
Jesus getting closer to the city on the back of this donkey. The people are praising him. This is but a precursor to what he will have in the end of all things when every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But here it's his disciples, maybe a little bit larger crowd, but mostly his disciples. You can imagine the scene, the sound of praise from the mouths of his disciples goes quiet in his ears as they're shouting, but he doesn't hear them. Tears fill his eyes as he weeps over the blindness of the people that would otherwise be joining in this chorus of praise. He says, these things have been hidden from your eyes. He said things like this before. In Luke 10, 21 to 24, he told his disciples in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now the thought of sinners dying in hardened obstinacy grieves Jesus to the core. And he issues a proclamation of judgment. So here we see a collision of the two images that Luke has brought throughout this whole text here in this proclamation. The gentle and humble Savior riding on a donkey who is grieved to tears by the hard-heartedness and the blindness of sinners. And on the other side, the King whom creation has longed for, now coming to the world to make peace between God and man once for all, and he's issuing a proclamation of judgment on those who refuse to bow their knee in worship. This prophecy that Jesus utters here would be fulfilled in a matter of about 40 years from the time he uttered it because they didn't recognize the God that they were supposedly worshiping was actually there among them. He was actually walking among them, and they didn't recognize him. And because they didn't recognize him, and because their hearts were so hard that they didn't believe in him, instead, they rejected him, they despised him, and they crucified him. They would face the judgment of God instead. The Roman armies led by Titus would surround the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD. They would set up a barricade around them. They will hem them in on every side. 
and then they will starve them, and they will eventually march into the city and destroy it brick by brick, leaving no stone unturned. More than a million Jews would lose their lives in that battle. Now, don't miss the irony here. That Luke clearly wants us to see. Psalm 118, which the crowds have been screaming about Jesus, is about a king who marches up to the temple, having conquered the nations and giving victory to the nation of Israel and presenting it at the temple. Here's Jesus, the fulfillment of Psalm 118, marching up to the temple, stripping Israel and Jerusalem of its power, and giving victory to the nations. Complete reversal of Psalm 118. And the reason? Because Jerusalem, her people, and her leadership were too blind to believe. Sadly, there are still those today that are just as steadfast in their rejection of Christ Some of them are even regular attenders in churches. They find themselves in those churches for maybe the music or maybe they like the way the preacher talks or they they like the fellowship that's around them. And a whole host of other things bring them to that place. But in their hearts, where no one else can see, when it comes to pouring out their hearts in gratitude, when it comes to actually worshiping this Christ who died as a substitute for them, there is privately in their hearts nothing going on on the inside. Listen to me. If he is not king to you personally, if he is not king to you you will be the object of his wrath. Either you acknowledge and worship him as king, or you are the object of his wrath. You might be able to fool your family. You might be able to fool your church. You might be able to lead a pretty regular moral life that on the outside appears to be Christian, but if there is no repentance of sin, if there is no joy in the worship of Christ who saved you and God who created you, then there is no salvation. Jesus' kingship must be applied to you personally. You really need to think, what does it actually mean to me? Do I sense joy and affection in my heart for the Lord. And when I come and assemble with the rest of the saints at a church, am I celebrating the fact that Christ has saved me? And in me, is there a sense of joy that he has done so? Do you realize that you must see that you are in the desert? We, all of us, are in the desert. And he came to us when we were dead and enemies of God in our trespasses. We were dead in our trespasses and we were enemies of God. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Does that give you any semblance of joy? 
Does it cause you to weep because though you are a great sinner, Christ is an even better Savior? The worship and praise and adoration that He is due must come from you too. Or you will be the object of His wrath. Jesus tells the disciples in Luke 13, 3, actually all of those standing around in Luke 13, 3, in five, actually, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus is abundantly clear. If there is no repentance, there is no celebrating his kingship by you personally, in your heart. If there's no celebration there, if there's no repentance there, only you know that. We don't know that. You can go through the motions and you can fool everyone. We don't know that. But in your heart, if it's not there, You are going to be the object of his wrath on judgment day. Are you ready? Friend, he offers you salvation. See your need for a savior. Turn, confess your sins to him. Profess faith in Christ. Rejoice in the fact that you're not enough. And you never will be. But he came to you and saved you. And his work is enough. That's true for all of us as well. Christians, feel that joy, but then think to yourself, man, there's so many times. Sunday morning rolls around even. Sitting there on the pew. I feel nothing inside no joy. Maybe you are watching a computer screen. It's not the same. It's not. And maybe you just long for that sense of joy and you're worried because you don't sense it. But listen, praise is due to Christ the King, even in the desert. Even in the desert. And in those times where you feel so distant and you feel so alone and you feel so separated from everybody else and you feel so anxious and nervous and worried and scared and all kinds and tempted and giving in to temptation all kinds of other things that you're feeling rest in the fact that he has come to you in the middle of the wilderness These people that are around him as he's walking on this donkey into town are all celebrating the fact that we are in the wilderness. We are lost in sin. And our Savior has come. No, they don't understand it all. And yes, some are probably going to turn, the city is going to turn and and give him over to crucifixion. And, and, And no, they don't understand it all. They're set on this. Christ is the only Savior we need. And He's enough. Because He gives life in the desert. That's what He came to do is meet us in the desert and bring us to Him. Because there is no way we could manufacture enough affection in our heart, enough obedience in our bodies to get where he was. We were in the desert and trapped there, enemies of God, and yet he saved us. Praise God. Have you lost 
a sense of purpose in the midst of this, what feels like an exile. This is your purpose. To praise Christ. To continue to give Him praise and adoration and affection every morning, every evening, whatever it takes to cultivate your heart to the point where it's giving Him praise and adoration and affection as you wake up and before you go to bed. You were created to be His vessel of praise. And if you can't give praise in the desert, then your praise in the promised land loses all meaning because you just become one more of those people who only praise Him when times are good. Listen, there is no middle ground. You are either a vessel of His praise or an object of His wrath. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know how hard this is. You know how hard it is to preach and not see the faces of your sheep at Emmanuel Baptist Church. You know how difficult, how difficult it is. I pray that all of these songs we sing and prayers we pray, and sermons we preach, and scriptures we read, not be in vain. That your word would climb even through the wires of the internet. Find the hearts of your people who are thirsty for your word and who desire more than anything to drink deeply from the rivers of life. And so I pray that you would give it to them. We know. You are the good shepherd. All pastors everywhere are subject to you, are at best under shepherds. And in this time, we have nothing left but to trust, which is a pretty good place to be. And so I pray that even over great distances, you would build a body together like only you can. In Jesus' name, amen.